Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment, and this is a wonderful world. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me, so Rav, say hello to everyone, share some of your special insight, and please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello everyone. Um, I'm not sure about special insights. I think the world is a wonderful place too, and I think if you keep your focus on that, it helps it become a wonderful place as well even when we are all socially Amen. isolated. But we're connected right now across the airwaves, and that's cool. Yes, it is. Amen, amen. It Satchmo, you know, Louis Armstrong, he does it better than anybody in my book. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree. That piece always gets to my heart. Um, if you want more information about today's show or you just want to chat or whatever, do join us on Facebook. That's just Provocative Enlightenment Radio. Just search that and you will find us. Um, if there is any information that gets shared during the show, you know, any special orals or anything like that, then I will post those um, on the Facebook page. So that is Provocative Enlightenment Provocative Enlightenment Radio. So pop in there and say hello. All right. In this week's Spotlight, I'd like to address the nature of certainty. Stanislaw is credited with saying, quote, To believe with certainty, we must begin by doubting. Close quote. Buddha admonished, doubt everything. The Course in Miracles begins by imploring, you to doubt even the floor upon which you stand. The walls of your home that protect you from the fury of nature doubt even the suggestion that nature itself exists. Indeed, the exercises in the course are designed to convince you that everything is an illusion, including the idea that you are somehow a separate being. For separation is itself according to the Course, the grandest illusion of all. Think about the value of doubt and contrast it with the notion of certainty. What is certainty after all? Can we ever be truly certain of anything? Bertrand Russell had this to say about certainty, quote, The demand for certainty is one which is natural to man, but is nevertheless an intellectual vice, close quote. What did he possibly mean by that? Creativity, certainty as a vice? Oliver Wendell Holmes viewed certainty this way. The longing for certainty is in every human mind, but certainty is generally illusion. So now we have certainty as a vice and or an illusion. We all want to feel certain about many things, and perhaps uh, there is a relativity to 
certain. I mean, certainly we can be more certain about some things than other things. We're certain the world is round. We're certain that the earth is much older than 7,000 years. We're certain that in 1969, the United States put men on the moon. Or are we really? Think about all those folks who doubt what most of us would hold as absolute certainties. But then, do we need universal consensus in order to be certain of anything? Rene Descartes argued in his syllogistic proof for being that because of doubt, he could assert that he existed. I doubt, therefore I am. Descartes is often heralded as the father of modern philosophy, and perhaps rightly so, because of his break from the traditional scholastic Aristotelian philosophy prevalent at the time, and to his development and promotion of the new mechanistic sciences. How important is certainty to you? Are you certain that you are not but a character in the dream of some greater being? Are you certain that you're more than some artificial life existing in a computer game or simulation? What can you say with a certainty that you are absolutely, absolutely, certain of. And yet, with all the potential uncertainty, we somehow know with great certainty many things. We know, for example, that there is no such thing as a number to which we can't add one. And we know this without knowing how we know. Indeed, the old clean slate theory that can be traced back to Aristotle cannot be totally correct if we know things that we've never been taught. For me, certainty is a moving target. As Russell put it, quote, to teach how to live without certainty and yet without being paralyzed by hesitation is perhaps the chief thing that philosophy in our age can do for those who study it. Remember this the next time you decide to argue with an absolute certainty about anything. It seems to me that certainty is certainly a good way to fool ourselves into ignorance. Those are my thoughts. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, I would agree with you there. If you think you're certain about something, then yeah, you've closed your mind off. You don't have the ability to learn. There's always that possibility. You know, that, I mean, that's how I always go is, um, is there a chance I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? What if? And it's not that I get paralyzed by it. I think it just opens doors for me. So there are de degrees to all of this stuff, you know. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can get paralyzed by it, but it can be functional and it can help you learn more and be open to learning a whole lot more. So it's interesting. All right. Well, today, you know, we have what I would consider one of my favorite professors. I've never had him personally, but I have had him in the great courses. He's an incredible mind. And we'll ask him about certainty. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured the book How to Suffer with author William Arnst. R.K. wrote, The Sufferometer also puts things into perspective. Ryan wrote, loved your guest, great show. He's a funny man casting a warm glow over suffering. 
Marianne wrote, every week you ask us to be willing to be uncertain for an hour. What does that mean? Well, Marianne, I hope if you listen to the spotlight today, you got a little bit of an answer. Francisco wrote, I have been using InterTalk for a couple of years now, and I'm a big believer in this technology. It's incredible without tuning into a positive frequency how that can help us accomplish things. And Evie wrote, I have purchased a number of your InterTalk recordings in the past, and I play them every day. I also tune into your Provocative Enlightenment podcast regularly. I love your show and consider it to be the best radio show in the world. You and your guests are such intelligent people giving us all much food for thought. Bless you. Well, thank you, Evie, and all of you for letters and comments. Um, I'm sure Ravinder fits that. She is among the very bright ones. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do so sincerely appreciate your comments and suggestions. I'll give you back a live mic now if your coughing is done. That was interesting timing. You're calling me intelligent and ripe prior to that. Yes, my coughing fit goes off. No, compared to, I mean, you, the guess that you've had now, um, intelli- I, yeah, I don't fit on the intelligence scale compared oh, to... Oh, yes, you do. But we have great ones. Let's just talk about today's. Today's show, The Incomplete Universe with Professor Patrick Grimm. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Patrick Grimm is Distinguished Teaching Professor Emeritus at Stony Brook University and philosopher in residence at the Center for the Study of Complex Systems at the University of Michigan. He is editor of the American Philosophical Quarterly, founding co-editor of almost 40 volumes volumes of the Philosopher's Annual, and author of The Incomplete Universe, as well as The Philosophical Computer, Reflexivity from Paradox to Consciousness, He has published widely in philosophical logic, philosophy of religion, philosophy of science and social epistemology, but also in theoretical biology, linguistics, decision theory, and computational modeling. His popular works include four lecture series from the great courses, Questions of Value, Philosophy of Mind, The Philosopher's Toolkit, and Mind-Body Philosophy. As an aside, although perhaps a very relevant one for all of our listeners, I have his Great Courses series, and he is indeed a favorite of mine. If you want to take just a little bit of time, you know, just an hour a day, it's incredible how much you can learn with these Great Courses. And I'm going to tell you that Professor Grimm's are among the best. You'll want to check them out at thegreatcourses.com. Use it as one word, thegreatcourses.com. Okay, on that, let's get our guest in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Patrick Grimm. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I'm just fine. All right, well, sir, we like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end... What are you passionate about and why? Uh, I'm passionate about thinking. I'm passionate about thinking and particularly trying to bring thinking together with uh, 
at least philosophically applied problems. So among the realms of thinking are some very abstract logical structures, which are interesting in their own way, but sort of like mathematics is interesting. On the other end are questions of social pragmatics, of social organization, of uh, polarization and how to, uh, how to deal with it. And if I can bring those together, and also of our place in the universe, and if I can bring those together, if I can learn lessons from the formal, almost mathematical models that have philosophical and applicational um, consequences, that's what I like to do. All right, you, you've got a, an extensive background, and, and I, you know, this radio show exists because as a young person, I, I always imagined the idea of having, you know, a round table. But instead of having knights there, I would have the brightest people, and be able to, to ask them questions and come to understand maybe deeper insight. And so, you know, I'm gonna we're gonna have a flare of that today. But you heard today's spotlight. How have I got it wrong? Oh, I don't think there's anything wrong in there. You're thinking about uh, certainty. Correct. And uh, uh, the only thing that I would have added as it went by is the idea, which I think is consistent with Russell, consistent with all of them, is that the fact that certainty may be unobtainable doesn't mean it's not valuable. In fact, it can be an epistemic norm. It can guide our whole epistemic, mean knowledge seeking. The right. idea of certainty can guide our investigations, even though we know we can never quite achieve it. In the same way, for example, that some notion of moral perfection might be a target, might be a goal, even though we know darn well we can't possibly get there. Still, to think of our moral lives with that kind of ideal is what gives them structure. And in the same way to think of our knowledge seeking lives with this impossible goal as a, as a guidepost uh, may be important. So certainty may be both unobtainable and um, something we couldn't possibly do without. Let me, let me begin by asking you some of these questions that I just, you know, was saving up for you. Um, let's start with the problem of consciousness. In your view, what is the best explanation for how the physical brain produces consciousness, such as the idea of emergent properties or perhaps uh, the possibility that the brain is just a filter for consciousness, uh, something uh, Dr. Peter Fenwick proposes? Where are you on consciousness? Uh, I think we really don't know. I think we uh, really don't have a clue, although I do have some ideas about how we should try to find out. If I had to take any of the existing options, uh, I'd like the emergent story to be true, but I'm not quite sure quite how that can work. Like, other people. I think consciousness is a hard problem. So I have some ideas about what the trajectory on trying to figure out consciousness should be, but I can't give you a theory that I'm anywhere near certain of. <laughs> <laughs> give me, flesh that out a little bit in terms of what would you do or how would you proceed uh, to develop a theory of consciousness? 
I think the first thing that we should try to figure out is what consciousness does. What is it that having consciousness does for an organism? If it takes energy, which it certainly does, and it's evolutionarily chosen for, then it must have some kind of behavioral or evolutionary function. So the first question is, what do you get when you get consciousness? What is it that you, what, what is it that a conscious organism could do that one somehow operating, uh, I guess, in many of the same ways in the dark, couldn't do? Now, I don't have any great theories as to what consciousness does. I'm not sure um, what it is that consciousness gives you that couldn't possibly be done by an organism that, in a sense, was operating the same way but didn't have the lights on. I don't know what the lights on gets you, but I think that would be the first step. Figure out what consciousness does. Then the uh, second step would be to, uh, once you've figured out what it does, try to analyze that function in abstract terms. What is it that it is doing? Can we get a mathematical model of what consciousness does that other things don't. If you have that, if you have this sort of abstract algorithm that gives you consciousness, then figure out how it's instantiated in the brain. How does the brain do that? So I guess to simplify, the first is figure out what consciousness does. Figure out, secondly, uh, what is the algorithm that does that? And the third would be, yeah, and how does the brain instantiate that algorithm? That would be the plan. There are two paradoxes in there, however. The first paradox is, it. I started by asking what consciousness does with this hypothesis that if it takes energy and it's evolutionarily chosen for, it must have some evolutionary advantage. That's not necessarily true. It could be that consciousness doesn't do anything that an unconscious mechanism couldn't possibly do. Uh, in evolutionary theory, there are things referred to as spandrels, such as uh, the color of your blood. Evolution never chose you to have red blood because red was a good evolutionary color. It chose you to have hemoglobin because it carried oxygen, and that happens to be red. But the red is uh, a side shoot. It's a accident that came along for the ride. And it is possible that consciousness, this gem of the universe, this thing we think of as the ultimate uh, thing in the universe, it could be it's an accident. It came along for the ride. It wasn't necessary. Evolution tends to grab whatever's at hand that may do what it needs, and maybe consciousness is there. The other paradox in that is, I said, first figure out what it does. Well, maybe there isn't anything it does. Second is, if you figure out what it does, figure out Mm, sort of the mechanism of that happening, the algorithm for that happening. The second paradox is, if we could do that, moving on to the third step of instantiated in the brain, if we've got an algorithm for what consciousness is, there doesn't seem any reason why we couldn't put it in a machine. So there doesn't seem to be any reason if consciousness is that kind of thing that we couldn't build conscious machines. And there are all kinds of questions about that, including some important ethical questions about that.
Yeah, no kidding. A lot of the the research today from Ben Limit, uh, Ben Libet to uh, the new work with fMRI tends to suggest that free will is an illusion. That is, we're seeing fMRI techs uh, able to determine what we're going to decide three to to six seconds on average before we know ourselves what we're deciding. Where are you on free will? Oh, I think I have to say that we've got free will. I don't think I, I don't think you could live without thinking that. Um, so I think it's a human necessity to believe it's there. Now the question is, is it a scientific uh, reality? There, the Libet tests uh, and some uh, early ones earlier ones, too, have been criticized in terms of their measurement of time. Uh, the What they do suggest, however, is that somehow the decision is being made before it comes into consciousness. I'm not sure that really entails that the decision hasn't been made or hasn't been made freely. It does seem to say that the mechanism of decision isn't like laying things out on the desk in front of you and choosing this piece of paper instead of another piece of paper. And maybe that's something that we should realize, that human choice, even if free, isn't that kind of model any more than human perception is really like watching a movie. So the, the, uh, the, the experiments are extremely interesting, extremely suggestive, I'm not sure in the end that they really undermine the idea of free will. All right. Well, when we come back, and now we get a break, staring me in the face and I'm frustrated. But when we come back, you're the philosopher. There are ramifications to the absence of free will uh, that tend to have many of us professionally being warned about even discussing this. As a philosopher, I'm going to ask you about the notion of limited free will and how that bears maybe on everything from our justice system to, uh, you know, our behavior on a day-to-day basis. We're speaking with Professor Patrick Grimm about his work and book, The Incomplete Universe. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting P. Grimm, one word, P. Grimm, G-R-I-M dot org. Okay, please do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What we tried to do, Professor, was play your music. Absolutely. The the Lonely Death of Hattie Carroll. So, and every week we do that because music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including, and I'm sure you know, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, Bob Dylan. The Lonely Death of Hattie Carroll. Why is that one important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Uh, It's important to me because it was uh, an an early influence on both musical tastes and on social consciousness, I guess. 
because it is a wonderful, long sort of talking, talking ballad, talking blues, but it's about the lonely death of Hattie Carroll, who uh, was at least one of the earliest cases in which a white person was convicted of the murder of a, uh, a black at a very different economic level. So Hattie Carroll is the maid in the kitchen who works on the levels in the hotel, slain by a cane that came down through the room. Uh, so that's that. I, I guess that's the best I can give you as an answer. Yeah, that's a great answer. That is a great answer. All right. Before the break, I suggested I was going to ask you about uh, the philosophical ramifications to the notion of a limited free will. Um, I think that we always deal with the idea of a limited free will. I think that we always have because children have been exceptions to, for example, legal and often moral responsibility. And certainly the mentally impaired have always been thought to be not fully responsible for their actions. Uh, we even extend it to cases where people produce situations that they choose to impose. And I'm not sure we should always do that. So uh, homicide becomes reduced if you were under the influence, even if you quite deliberately chose to be under the influence. So I think we've always had this sort of notion of limited free will. The philosophical problem of free will is something mm, deeper and harder because it seems to be head on uh, two different ways we have of thinking of the world, one as ethical participants in it and one as scientific observers of it. Amen. One more question on consciousness, Professor. Sir Roger Penrose and Dr. Stuart Hameroff view consciousness as interacting with the physical universe, and I call those two out because there are a number of people that do, and I've interviewed uh, most of them, uh, that find a you know, a quantum interface. They see consciousness as somehow acting on the physical universe and co-creating, if you will. Well, Hameroff and Penrose, uh, their interface is microtubules, and so at least they have a mechanic. Does does any of this gain traction with you? Uh, very little, although I have a great respect for Roger Penrose. Uh, who's done marvelous work in mathematics and astrophysics. Um, nonetheless, I think this isn't the key to where we're trying to go. Um, in terms of uh, quantum action in the microtubules, Patricia Churchland uh, has a quip on that, to which I'm sympathetic, which is, well, quantum action in the microtubules would explain consciousness about as much as fairy dust would that it doesn't yet tell us how that could produce this the sensory experience that we think of as consciousness so i i'm open to every and any approach to trying to figure out consciousness um but i'm not i i can't say i'm convinced by uh penrose and hammerhoff Okay, so the general idea, and, and there are physicists that put this out too, the general idea that consciousness interacts with the universe, 
the reason we have wave-particle duality is because we're actually causing one or the other uh, to occur. Um, that that notion with you, no traction. <clears throat> At least I'm dubious. Uh, I think consciousness enters the physicist's world through the measurement problem. But it's not it, the measurement problem. It's not clear what the measurement is. One way of interpreting it is, oh, yes, things uh, things act differently when we watch. And it's our consciousness watching that makes them do that. But it's also true that things act differently if you have a camera that takes a picture at a particular time and you look at it later. Then you have to say, oh, it's our consciousness later that caused that thing earlier. None of that is, I think, impossible, but it's also very possible that we have a theory that's written in terms of something that we don't quite understand called measurement, and that measurement may not be crucially tied to consciousness. Gotcha. All right, let's move on to the nature of truth. There are many people today that hold to their personal truth as being the truth, the only truth, something that should apply to everyone. Indeed, some insist that their truth, uh, they hold it with an epistemological certainty, you know? You write about truth in your book, The Incomplete Universe. How many truths are there? And is it possible for there to be two different truths about the same thing? Uh, Two very different questions. The book is really about the first question, about how many truths are there? And the answer is, there are too many for a number. Or there are too many for them to be all of them. That's why it's the incomplete universe. The universe being spoken of there isn't just the physical universe. It includes the mathematical universe, the conceptual universe. And if you try to collect... Ah, a collection of all the truths, or being able to refer to a collection of all the truths within any logic we have, you get deeply into paradox. And that's why the book tends to say that the only, the only alternative to that kind of paradox, which is ultimately contradiction, is to recognize that uh, the truths are enough that they will forever escape any conceptual grasp. The question, the second question is very different, whether there can be two truths um, about the same thing, about the same thing. We started off talking about certainty as a uh, as an epistemic norm, as a guiding light, even if it was something that we couldn't grasp. I think the same thing is true of truth, that, yes, you do have a concept of ground truth. I think you would have to. Otherwise, what are you trying to figure out? It can't just be what you want to believe. You already have what you want to believe, or you can make yourself believe what you want to believe. But what we're after is something that's beyond us, this idea of a truth that's beyond us that we're trying to grasp. On the other hand, I think when you look at the cases where it looks like there are alternative truths about the same thing, There are often things like um, truths from a very different perspective. They're both truths. They may not strictly be about the same thing. For example, you're in San Francisco, right? No, Um, I'm in 
I'm in Washington State. Okay, you're in Washington. Yeah. I'm back in uh, Michigan. Right. And I can tell you truths about the sunrise when you're still in the dark. Well, that's a truth for me in the sense that the sun is rising from my perspective here in Michigan, and it hasn't yet risen in Washington. Um, but is it the same? Is it is it really mm, a two truths about the same thing? Or is it about something that is only visible from a particular perspective? I'm actually uh, more and more inclined to think of things in terms of perspectives. So both free will and I think consciousness may be like this, where free will may be something that you can only see inside of action. Only an actor, somebody who does something, can see free will. If you play a movie of what I'm doing that is uh, from the outside, from a purely scientific view, you'll never see my free will. That's something you can only see from the inside. In the same way that I think consciousness, my consciousness at least, is something I can only see from the inside, yours from your inside, that I can study your brain forever and I'll never see your consciousness. That's perspectival. That's something only visible from a particular point, just like the sunrise is visible from a particular point. That's kind of a relativistic view, though, isn't it? I mean, it puts the uh, onus on... Uh, the quality of subjective experience, and doesn't that undercut the whole nature of science in a subjective uh, position? No, I don't think so. I think perspectivalism and, sub and, and subjectivism are entirely different. That was the first thing about uh, truth really being something beyond us that we're trying to find out. I think there really is a truth of when the sun rises in Michigan. It isn't up to me to decide when the sun rises in Michigan. On the other hand, the sun rising in Michigan is different than the sun rising in Washington. So uh, I don't think that's subjective. I think that's... No, but the free will and the consciousness, if only the observer, if only the actor, as you say, knows free will um, or observes his own actions of free will or observes their own awareness of consciousness, then that turns everything about the human condition relative to at least our mental processes into the subjective area, does it not? It does mean that there is something true about our experience that we can only see from within our experience. That doesn't mean mm, that there are not plenty of things, including an explanation of it, that may be outside of our experience. But the thing itself, the consciousness itself, or the free gotcha. will within action itself, um, are things you can only see from one particular spot. They're really there. They could be explained in terms of things you can see from elsewhere but they won't exactly be what you see from elsewhere. Your words. There ultimately can be no totality of facts. Um, that That's all relative to the nature of the physical world. There's no limit to that. But with regard to the subjective world, that wouldn't hold, or is that true? 
know, I think that's true of the subjective world, too. Um, uh, I hadn't thought about it in, in precisely that way before. But a key to the uh, incompleteness of truth isn't just the physical universe. It's the conceptual universe. It includes mathematics and set theory and that kind of thing. And in fact, the the uh, proofs that uh, uh, I and other people have carved out have to do with the conceptual realm in a in a particular sense, in the same way that we can explore a conceptual realm in our heads uh, that isn't merely exploring the inside of our heads, in the same way we can think about mathematics and mathematical truth as objective and independent of us, even though this, what it's made of is ideas. All right, let's let's move on to your work, the philosophical computer. What is computational philosophy, and how the dickens did you get into that? Computational philosophy is an attempt to use computational resources to approach the same philosophical problems uh, and also social scientific problems that we've been dealing with for a very long time. So in the same way that the 20th century developed formal logic, which was used to analyze, to uh, uh, reappraise, to reapproach a range of philosophical problems, we now have computational resources at our fingertips that allow us to do philosophy in ways we couldn't do before. That's what computational philosophy is. If you want to know more about it, uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy has an article on computational philosophy. I happen to have written it, so I can <clears throat> be conceited a, and do that way. It's a great article, too. <laughs> and that's good. <laughs> I'm glad you plugged it. Now... <clears throat> You know, logic 101, A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. So we come along and we do some philosopher logic. We create a little syllogism, you know. Uh, We say, um, um, John Wayne is an actress. All actresses (laughs) shave their armpits, therefore John Wayne shaves his armpits. There are a lot, and I know you know this, a lot of serious flaws in logic, <laughs> in books, and articles have just poured out to, to talk about those. Do you have the same problem in computational philosophy? In a way, because computational philosophy very often consists of making models. Uh, computational models. Much of the work I do is agent-based modeling. So, for example, one of the things that uh, I and my research group have concentrated on is opinion polarization with questions of, oh, under what situations do uh, opinions in a society polarize as badly as ours seem to have polarized? Are there ways to fix it? Uh, Is it an inherently irrational thing to happen? Or can you have rational polarization? In order to tackle that, we build computational models in which we have little agents, computational agents that have simplified cognitive behaviors, and we operate what they do, giving us theories or at least hypotheses as to when and how, for example, polarization will occur. Well, all of that is only as good as our models. 
in the same way that uh, a logical argument is only as good as both the premises and the logic that's used. So that can go wrong. And uh, you have to keep an eye out for it. You have to always be open to the prospect that the model you're using is not the right one. This isn't limited to computational philosophy, however. It's, it applies to all thinking. All of your thinking involves making a model of the world and trying to figure out what would happen when. And it's always possible, getting back to your certainty issue that we began with, it's always possible that your conceptual model is wrong. So let me just ask you, because our country is so polarized and, you know, of all times for us to be as polarized as we are, it's in the midst of a pandemic. Of all your models, have you been able to to one determine what the problem is that's caused the polarization? I mean, outside of politics or is there a way to even do that, I guess? And then and two, how do we move forward? How do we how do we end this polarization? Is it occurs to me it doesn't matter who wins this next election. That isn't going to change the polarization. And I'm afraid that's probably true. Um, the uh, the question of how it arises and what we can do about it are different ones. I think that our research, among other research, research in social psychology, research in sociology, does indicate that there's something very important about polarization that's happened because of changes in the way we communicate, changes in who we talk to, changes in what media sources we go to. So if we didn't have polarized media sources, if this were still 1960 and the only news came through the CBS, NBC, ABC at six o'clock in the evening, um, we would have a different, uh, a different communication situation and we wouldn't have the same, uh, I won't say there weren't echo chambers then, but they weren't instantly available and chosen for you by Google. And a major part of polarization, even, even in ways in which it's rational, is that you filter your information in terms of what you already think is true. And if you increasingly polarize in one direction, or if people keep doing that, uh, you will get polarization of opinion. How you fix it is a really difficult question, other than, oh, changing the communication means, or having people actually talk to each other. But that's the whole problem about polarization is because of our polarization, we don't. Yeah. And it sounds like you need a state-run media in order to change uh, yeah, the problem you described. That and that then that doesn't go ahead. What are you going to say? I don't think we want that either. <laughs> no, I agree with you totally. So, okay, look, some of the feedback that I received from my team when they were setting up the show suggests that uh, there are other ways that the universe is incomplete than those we've discussed uh, or that you set forward in your first book, The Incomplete Universe. What are they? Um, I'm not sure what they have in mind. The uh, incompleteness I'm talking about is practically, strictly uh, conceptual, logical, mathematical incompleteness. 
um, and provable as such. The other ways in which it's incomplete would be physical things about, oh, how far uh, and how fast light can travel, information can travel. That's a physicist's realm um, rather than a philosopher's. Okay. We're coming to the end of the show, and before we get out of here, I want everybody to know how they can learn more about you, how they can obtain your courses. I've plugged those. They they are, I have to tell you, I sincerely appreciate and enjoy the lecture series, uh, all three of them that you've done for uh, the great courses. But tell everybody where they can get your books, how they can reach out to you, how they can learn more about you, where they can find your articles. You have 30 seconds. Go. Go to www.pgrim.org and they can find routes to various things I've written. The Great Courses, if you go to The Great Courses, or just Google Patrick Grimm Great Courses, you'll find those. Um, otherwise, I actually am approachable and findable on, uh, at, uh, on the Internet. All right. I want to thank you, uh, Professor, for all of your work and and the contribution that you continue to make uh, to the improvement of the human, uh, our understanding of ourselves and perhaps and hopefully our behavior. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time, same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember... Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.